Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. In your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48 is where we'll be for the message this morning, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. The other night, Bryson, my oldest son, seven-year-old son, he said to me, Daddy, it's hard being the big brother. The other boys won't listen to me. And that's because... We hear him quite often try to say the things that I say to his other brothers, right? He tries to either instruct them or correct them like I would, and it usually doesn't go so well for him. We we hear him, him, you know, copy the phrases that I use, you know, like, when you get out of the van, don't act like hooligans, right? (laughs) And we hear Bryson say something like that, boys, when we get out of the van, don't act like hooligans. Sometimes they do act like hooligans. When he, tries to, when he tries to be me, Andrew and I have referred to him often as second daddy. Well, thank you, second daddy, for, for doing that. Thank you for, you know, taking up that role. But, but think about it. Why does he say and do those things? Why do any of us do some of the things that we do even now? Think about it. The, the hand gestures that you use right, or the way you stand, your posture in some way, or maybe your decisions with money, phrases that you say. I, I said something to, to somebody the other day, and they looked at me like, I said, well, I don't know, that's just what my mom always said. Recipes you use, jobs you pursue, teams you cheer for. Why, when, at the house yesterday when we were watching the Ohio State game, when I said O-H, why did the boys say I-O? Because I've brainwashed them. I mean, because I have instructed them, instructed them that that's what we do in this house, right? And they, of course, play along because they want to be like daddy. Think about it. A lot of us, the reason we cheer for a certain team, the reason we use this recipe, the reason we make this decision is because that's what our parents did. Oftentimes, a lot of the stuff we do, that's what my mom did, that's what my dad did. That could be good or bad. Could be for good, it could be for bad. We act like whose we are. We act like whose we are. In Matthew 5, Jesus instructs us to act like our Father, our Heavenly Father, in a specific but very difficult way. We're going to read through these verses here, verse 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? 
And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. In these verses, as part of the the greater Sermon on the Mount, Jesus combats a perversion of the Old Testament law that the scribes were the ones that had often popularized. And it was a popular phrase. Because Jesus in verse 43 says, you've heard that it was said. You've heard people talk about this. You've heard people say this phrase. The phrase was, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now that's not an Old Testament phrase. That's not something that we find in the law. What we find in the law or how Jesus summarized the law is that we are to love our neighbor as our self. That's what Jesus used. To, that's the phrase Jesus used to summarize the Old Testament law. Well, the religious leaders and the scribes in Jesus' day have come along and they've twisted it. They've taken love your neighbor as yourself and they've made it love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There's two problems with that statement. Two things wrong with this statement. There's something that's missing and there's something that's added. Notice how he says, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What's missing is love your neighbor as yourself. In their, in their pride, they did not want to have to love anyone as much as they love themselves. And then the second thing is they've added a phrase, hate your enemy. You do not find that phrase in the Old Testament. It's not a command in the Old Testament that you are supposed to love your neighbor and you are supposed to hate your enemy. They add that because in their prejudice, they don't want to have to extend their love too far. The scribes, and how did they get to that point? The scribes interpreted the positive of love your neighbor to also make the inverse true. That if someone is not my neighbor, then I don't have to love them. See where they're going there? If you love your neighbor, if that's true, then your enemies must be hated. One of the problems is the scribes had a too, too narrow of a definition of neighbor. Their definition of neighbor included only those people who were friendly to them in return. If you love me, I'll love you, and you are my neighbor. Then Jesus steps in, and Jesus completely blows up that thinking with this passage and with a story that he told. The Good Samaritan. Remember this? Jesus completely blows this up because the Good Samaritan stopped to help someone who was supposed to be his enemy. He was supposed to hate that man. And Jesus said, remember the question he asked? Who was being the neighbor? So in Jesus' view, love your neighbor meant the whole human race whether friend or enemy. The scribes, though, in their devious eyes, had developed a law-abiding excuse, or so they thought, to treat people they considered enemies with hatred and disdain. Think about it. Foreigners that came in, the Roman occupiers of that day, anyone who happened to disagree with them, Well, look, it's basically in the Old Testament. We love our neighbor, but you, not so much. We have a law-abiding excuse to treat people we consider enemies with hatred. 
aren't you glad that we would never do something like that? Aren't you, aren't you glad that we would never manipulate God's law in order to justify what our hearts want to do? We would never be guilty. I, I feel sarcasm dripping off of my chin right now. Politics, anybody? Where if we can prove that somebody is an enemy, then somehow we think we are authorized in some way to hate them. If I can prove that they are on the opposite side of me, then I have the ability to hate them. Jesus comes along in verse 44, and he flips everything upside down. Notice, you have heard that it was said. Verse 43. Verse 44 but I say to you. Here's a great point from this passage. Jesus is saying the scribes don't make the rules for Christian living. The scribes don't make the rules for followers of me. I do. Translate that to today. The accepted ideals of our world that we are supposed to hate people that are not like us. The accepted ideals of our world do not set the standard for Christian living. Jesus does. You've heard that it was said, but... I say to you, there's another way to live. Instead of hating your enemy, Jesus says, verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies. That was radical. Love your enemies. And then in verse 44, some of you will have an an extended translation of this, where in verse 44 it says, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. If you only have the part in your Bibles where it says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, don't worry. The rest of that is in Luke 6, where we have another recap of the Sermon on the Mount. If you look at Luke 6, 27 to 28, Jesus says this. He says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So what is Jesus saying we're supposed to do? Number one, with your words, you are to bless your enemy instead of cursing them. That's what he says. Bless those who curse you. We saw that in Romans 12 as well. Bless those who curse you. Jesus is not the only person in Scripture to give us this. 1 Peter 3, 9. Peter says, do not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Bless those that curse you instead of hating them. Secondly, he says, with your actions, you are to do good to the ones that hate you. So with our words, we bless. With our actions, we are to do good. It says, do good to those who hate you. We saw this in Romans 12 as well. It says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. This is challenging because think about this. Love in any form, but even here to enemies, love for enemies is demonstrated by positive service for their good. Not just positive emotion pointed in their direction. That's true with all of love, but Jesus applies it here to the love for enemies, maybe the hardest love of all. It is positive service for someone's good, not just positive emotion sent in their direction. I remember one time, my my wife's sister, 
She posted online a struggle or something she was going through on Facebook, and one of her friends commented back and said, I'm sending good vibes your way. Ooh. You ever, you ever had good vibes come your way? I'm not even sure what to do with good vibes, right? But it's not positive service for our good. It's just emotion kind of sent out there to make us sound like we really care. That's tough. To actually do good for someone who is our enemy. Not just say we do. He doesn't stop there though. The end of verse 44. Pray for those who spitefully use you. So with our words, with our actions, and with our prayers, we are to pray for those who exploit us and who persecute us. In 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 and 2. Paul tells Timothy, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Pray for those who exploit you and persecute you. Watch this. If your government officials are the ones who persecute you, you are doubly commanded to pray for them. Because 1 Timothy 2 says, pray for uh, all men for kings and all who are in authority. Matthew 5.44 tells us, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. You are commanded to pray for them on two fronts for two reasons. That's tough too. This isn't easy stuff. This is hard to apply this. One of the areas I think we struggle when it comes to differences of opinion in politics is fulfilling First Timothy chapter 2. Praying for people we disagree with and don't even like that much. One of the questions I think we have to answer before we, before we go any further, when Jesus says, love your enemies, let's think through here, who are the enemies that are in view? Who are the enemies that are in view in our own lives? I, I read a book uh, entitled Love in Hard Places by D.A. Carson, and he puts enemies into three categories, and I think it's helpful for us. He puts our enemies into three categories. There's big enemies, Big enemies are the persecuting enemies. These are the ones who hate us, who want to see our demise, maybe even our death. Why? Because of our attachment to Christ. And Jesus said, Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated because of me. Those are big enemies. Some of them are very obvious. They do not want you to succeed as a Christian. They hate you because of Christ. Then D.A. Carson says, there's another category, little enemies. Little enemies are the people whose personalities and actions we just intensely dislike. They're not out to harm us. We just don't get along with them. We all have those people, right? They're not trying to harm us. They're not trying to hurt us. We're not trying to hurt them. We just, we just butt heads. It just doesn't work. Then the third category he calls other enemies. These aren't enemies that don't fit into big or little. The word other meaning the ones who are supposed to be our enemies because they are different from us. Whether that's race, gender, class, political party. You're supposed to be my enemy because you don't fit into my box. You're supposed to be my enemy because you're not part of my tribe. You're different. You're other. That's a challenging one as well. So we got big, little, and other. And I want to think through these for a second. It's hard to love big enemies, right? The persecuting enemies. Because in that instance, your life, your very life may be on the line. 
When you're trying to express love for somebody that hates you and maybe even wants to see you die, your life could be on the line. That's tough. It's challenging to love the other enemies because we have been so culturally conditioned toward tribalism that it's excruciatingly awkward to cross those barriers. We've all been there. It is weird to try to step outside of my comfort zone and cross those barriers. So big enemies are hard to love. Other enemies are hard to love. But you know what? You know what may be the hardest one of all? The little enemies. Why? Well, think about it. In loving big enemies and other enemies, there's a certain, there's a certain heroism with, with, you know, that kind of stirs our adrenaline and says we want to set a good example for the world. We faced persecution and we stood strong. But loving the little enemies is the work of the mundane. Loving the little enemies is the day-to-day grind. It's the love that you get no recognition for. It's the love that, that you love these people even though every fiber of your sinful flesh is telling you not to. Not everyone will face the big enemies of persecution. Right? Some of us really haven't faced that too much. Not everyone will face the big enemies of persecution in their lifetime. But guess what? We will all face the little enemies every single day. Who are those people? The, the harassing neighbor, the egotistical boss, the unbelieving spouse, the rebellious child, the uncooperative student, the rude church member, the obnoxious co-worker. These are the little enemies that we face every single day and Jesus calls us to love them. Hold on though for a second. Remember, for every reason that someone else is your little enemy, you probably yourself have two reasons why you are their little enemy. So don't think that I'm perfect and they're the problem, therefore my, they're my enemy. No, we've probably got our own problems. I know we have our own problems as to why we are also their enemy. So don't blame them. Don't blame the enemy for the problem because we all have those little quirks, those little things that we do that create enemies. This becomes really, really tough because it's the nitty-gritty relationships that Jesus is talking about. The nitty-gritty relationships where Jesus calls us to love those people who for one reason or another we don't get along with. In our personal relationships, be that with with big enemies, persecuting enemies, with day-to-day enemies, or, or people that are different from us, Jesus says you are called to love. In your personal relationships with them, the high calling is love. One other thing that I might need to clarify before moving on, and hopefully with this, we don't raise more questions than we answer. But but I want to throw this out there. And that is that loving our enemies does not mean that we forego all judicial or moral parameters for the punishment of crime and the ordering of society. Some people will advocate that. Well, love would have us accept everyone no matter what. There are some fruitcakes that say that. Okay, they'll they'll promote that just well, just love wins, just love everybody. And what they're saying is basically don't stand for anything. Don't stand on any sort of truth. 
couple examples here that might help to frame this for us. Loving our enemies does not mean we release all prisoners from jail to roam free and pillage society because somebody thinks, well, it's unloving to restrain them in that way. Well, think about it. How would it be loving to the victims or the potential victims? Loving our enemies does not mean that we shy away from a justly carried out death penalty because it seems unloving to have such a harsh penalty. I didn't establish the death penalty. God did. Loving our enemies does not mean that we sit by idly as leftist liberals ransack our religious liberty, break down the traditional morals of society, destroy the nuclear family, and banish gatherings of the church while promoting a culture of death, abortion, transgenderism, and Marxist socialism. Criminals and those who seek to upend God's ordering of creation are his enemies. We are to seek justice for criminals, and we are to bring life and peace to society, not death and debauchery. However, we do all of that with this in mind. We must be careful to do it without acting out on personal vendettas, personal animosity, or hatred for those people. You with me? We cannot act out on personal hatred for those people. I stand against certain politicians, not because I personally hate them, but because I hate the evil that they so readily promote. Ephesians 6.12 says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Here's the tension. We must stand against evil and love our enemies at the same time. That's hard. That is challenging but not impossible. Challenging, but not impossible. Why would Jesus command us to do something so difficult? Why would he command us to do something so challenging? He answers that in verse 45. Because he wants us to be like our heavenly Father. Verse 45, you do all these things You love your enemies. You bless those who curse you. You do good to those who hate you. You pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. When we love our enemies, we imitate God because he loves his enemies. That's the reason that we do it. Verse 45 goes on that you may be sons of your Father in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The illustration he uses here is is the farmer. The God-hating farmer gets the same rain and sun that the God-fearing farmer gets who lives next door. In countless ways, God's enemies experience the mercy and goodness of God repeatedly over and over every day of their lives. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. And those good gifts fall on the just and on the unjust. Theologians refer to this as common grace. Common grace. It is God's undeserved provisions of mercy, love, grace, and goodness 
that all people get. Why? Because they are human. Because they are, are people that God created in his image, all people get, a, get some form of common grace. A form of God's goodness in their lives. I'll offer a couple qualifiers here in our understanding of common grace. Number one, the amount of common grace that someone receives is in no way an indicator of their standing with God. Matthew Henry, the uh, uh, Puritan theologian, he said it this way, we cannot, love, we cannot know love and hatred by what is before us, but by what is within us. Not by the shining of the sun on our heads, but by the rising of the sun of righteousness within our hearts. When we look on the outward appearance, we say that person has been so blessed by God, they must be a child of his. But if salvation were evidenced by the number of good things someone receives, many God-hating billionaires would have an exceptionally good claim on salvation. Realize that? This is, that's one of the places that the prosperity gospel goes way wrong. Look at all the good I have. I have to be right with God. No, the good you have may be just an example of God's common grace that everybody gets in different proportion. Secondly, common grace is in no way some form of utopian universalism in which everybody's going to heaven. We just all get there different ways. That's not what common grace is, where God is giving grace to everybody and they're all going to get there. Universalism is diabolical because it trivializes and eradicates the need for Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Think about it. If Christ was not dying on the cross to accomplish the salvation of all who will believe, what on earth, and I mean literally, what on earth was he doing? What was he doing? Some people would say, well, he was giving us a poignant example of selfless living. But then why was God's wrath poured out on him? Why did Christ say he was giving his life as a ransom for many? Why was he called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? God's common grace must be distinguished from his saving grace. Two different things. In Matthew 5.45, when he says the rain and the sun fall on the just and on the unjust, that is God's common grace and goodness on display as an example to us, to believers, to replicate the common grace and goodness that God shows to all people, even his enemies. So we are supposed to act like God in giving common grace and goodness to all people, whether enemy or friend. And when we do that, when we show common goodness to our enemies, we do not become the sons of our father. What do we do? We prove that we are sons of our father. That's what he says, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. We begin to look like what we are supposed to look like. Because God is the only one that can do it in us can't love an enemy on your own it's got to be the work of God in your heart and that's where he goes in verse 46 and 47 for if you love those who love you what reward have you do not even the tax collectors do the same and if you greet your brethren only what do you do more than others do not even the tax collectors do so 
See, loving our enemies is not natural. It is supernatural. It is something we don't just do because we're, we're, we're born to do it. Tax collectors here is the example he uses in verses 46 and 47. Tax collectors were some of the most despicable people of that day. They were the lowest of the low. They were swindlers and cheats. And everybody knew it. Yet notice how Jesus says, even tax collectors can love those who love them and greet those who greet them. Why? Because it's normal behavior. It's natural. It's easy. And for a tax collector, it's good business practice. You connect me with your peeps, I'll connect you with my peeps. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Hey, let's help each other out, right? You love me, I love you. But there's no heroism in in loving those who love you, is there? Do you get congratulated for loving your mom? Of anybody in the world, she probably loves you the most. And nobody says, oh, terrific, you've loved your mom. Well, you kind of expect that. She loves you. In verse 47, he says, if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? That's an interesting question. What do you do more than others? Your actions, in other words, are indistinguishable from unbelievers. You're doing nothing more than someone else would do, and they don't even claim to know Christ. If you only greet those who greet you and love those who love you, Christ obviously has had no effect in your life. What do you do more than others? It's not the tax collector's love for those who love them that is the standard for us. It's God's love for his enemies that is the standard for us. And he says basically that in verse 48. Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus says we are to copy the perfections of our heavenly Father. 1 Peter 1.16 says it in a little different way. 1 Peter says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Do you look like your heavenly father? Do you have his mannerisms? Do you sound like him? Do you have his love for enemies? Recently in in youth group, we watched a video about the persecuted church. And in that video, there was a man by the name of Reverend Yasser Eric. And he shared his story of growing up as a Muslim. This is in South Sudan. He was taught, he said, from a young age to hate Jews and to hate Christians. Well, one day as a teenager, a Christian boy named Zachariah came to his school. And this man, Yasser, he said he and his classmates would blame him for everything. They would hit him. They would beat him almost every single day. And the Reverend Yasser Eric, he said that he was amazed then that when they insulted Zachariah, he smiled. He says when we did bad things to him, he never hit us back. 
One night he said they beat this man, this, this boy Zachariah, they beat him so bad with the, their guns that he almost died. Because he was Christian. It's the only reason. 25 years later, Reverend Yasser Eric, having become a Christian, God having transformed his life, and now being involved in ministry himself, he was speaking at a conference. And after he was done speaking, a man walked up to him and he said, do you remember me? My name is Zachariah. 25 years ago, you almost killed me. But I have prayed for you every day since then. Can you imagine? That's the high standard of loving our enemies that we are to aspire to. But could Zachariah or could us do that in our own strength? Is that normal, natural behavior? No. It must be the supernatural power of God that works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. English theologian Alfred Plummer said this, listen carefully, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. In Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48, Jesus gives us this command to love our enemies. He gives it to us both from a position of authority because he is God. But he also gives it to us from a position of personal example because he was human. When Jesus says, bless those who curse you, guess what? Jesus did that. Jesus knew the whole time, his earthly ministry, he knew the whole time that Judas would betray him. But do we ever see Jesus treat Judas with disdain or or return his betrayal with, with vindictiveness? No. When Peter denied Jesus three times, Peter acted as if he was an enemy of Christ. Matthew 26, 74 says that Peter cursed and he swore that he does not know Jesus. But did Jesus return cursing for cursing? No. Instead, Jesus blessed Peter. In John 21, Jesus comes back to Peter there beside the the lake and he brings him back to fellowship and faithfulness. Jesus blessed those who cursed him. Jesus said, do good to those who hate you. Jesus did that too. When Jesus was arrested in the garden, Peter, in an act of vengeance, remember he pulls his sword and he cuts off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. In essence, Peter is saying, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And Jesus says, no, Peter, now's not the time, put the sword away. And Jesus reaches over and it says he healed the ear of Malchus. He helped somebody that he should have hated. Jesus said, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. In Acts chapter 7, verse 60, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, as he was being stoned for his faithfulness to Christ, 
the stones are falling on him. And the Bible says in Acts 7 verse 60 that he says this about the ones who were stoning him. He says, do not charge them. He's praying this to God. Do not charge them with this sin. Where did he get that? Where did he get that idea of of praying for and forgiving his enemies at the moment of them acting as his enemies? See, Stephen's love for his enemies reflected Jesus on the cross. In Luke 23, 34, Jesus prayed while on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. While being persecuted, he prayed for his persecutors. That's powerful. What a standard to live up to. As the men come forward and we transition to serve communion, I want to draw our attention to thinking about how all of Jesus' life was demonstrated by love for his enemies. Think with me for a second. All of his life was demonstrated by love for his enemies. Jesus, probably above any other person, was hated, mocked, despised, resisted, rejected, attempted to be murdered a few times. He was rejected. He was disrespected. And yet, Jesus, every single time, was without sin. No personal vendettas, no animosity, no retaliation. He never once returned any of this sin with sin of his own. So Jesus comes to us in Matthew 5 and he gives us this command to love our enemies from a position of authority as God and from a position of personal example because he lived it out. He proved his love for his enemies when he died on the cross for his enemies while they were being his enemies. He died for enemies past, He died for enemies present, and he died for enemies future. I know that includes me. Because without Christ, I'm an enemy of God. I know it includes all who have trusted Christ as Savior. I know it includes those who are now, currently, the enemy of Christ, but whom God is calling to salvation.